0: We are now going to end our um, conversation on a discussion about how, well essentially it's what Matthew I guess was talking about in terms of the the divide between public expectation and um, the reality of what's tenable and you know, belief obviously infuses all of that. Um, And so we're going to have a discussion about how um, this is communicated to the public and for that can we have the Lights back down, please. And I'd like to welcome on stage our panel, Ray Tallis, Ona Heath, uh, Gabriel Scully, and Sean Ellion. I'm just going to break with tradition a bit and ask you all to just introduce yourselves, please,
1: to the audience. Starting with uh, Sean. I'm Sean Ellion. I'm a consultant oncologist and I work with uh, Sam here in Gloucestershire. And uh, for part of my time, I'm a medical director for the Acute Hospitals Trust.
2: I'm Ray Tallis. I was professor at Juratimits Medicine the University in Manchester for 20 years. I'm now retired and I'm a writer.
3: I'm Gabriel Scally. I'm a public health doctor. I was regional director of public health for the Southwest for about 18 years until the end of March when I left my employment in the Department of Health. I'm now uh, an academic in the University of the West of England where I uh, direct the WHO Collaborating Centre on Healthy Urban Environments.
4: I'm Iona Heath. I was a normal... I think you described us as normal. Mm. I was a normal GP in Kentish Town, um, in London for nearly 34 years and then I was president of the Royal College of GPs for three years and that stopped a week ago and now I'm planning to be a domestic goddess. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, you have five minutes each to talk about, um, well, communicating with the public, however you uh, conceive of the challenges and issues around that. And if we could start with you, Sean, thank you.
1: Um, I should start with an excuse, and that is that I I sort of feel like an intellectual minnow in a a sea of um, cerebral mammoths, so this is an excuse for what's about to follow. Um, but a little while ago, I was um, somewhat shocked by the response to a question I asked a patient um, when I was offering her discharge after six years from my first meeting with her. Um, she accepted the offer of discharge. And um, just to tell you the story a little bit, that Mrs. Jones, Jones—or oh, that's the name I'm going to give her for the purposes of this, presented when she was 75 with a high-grade non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, extremely unwell. And I discussed with her the options for treatment, which were, Uh, active uh, treatment with chemotherapy, with approximately a 40% chance of cure, or best supportive care with an anticipated lifespan of probably four weeks in those circumstances. She went away very briefly and discussed this with her family and came back and uh, decided to have treatment. And um, she had six cycles of chemotherapy, had a good response to treatment, and then went on to follow up with no side effects, long-term side effects from that treatment. And it was at this point, six years on, when I offered her the discharge. And uh, as a parting shot, as she was just about to walk out the door, I said, "Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, was that worthwhile having the treatment? Was it the right decision that you made six years ago? Uh, Possibly some way of massaging my own ego, I suspect. Uh, The answer was an absolute definite, unrequited no, it was the wrong decision. And when I explored that a bit more, when I got over being very crestfallen, she pointed out that all her friends had died, her family who rallied around at the time of the illness disappeared and virtually never visited her in the interim six years, and uh, her raison d'etre had disappeared. And so for her, that uh, facing death at that point gave her the opportunity to say no to treatment, but she possibly was coerced, I don't know, by her family to have treatment at that time. So I would suggest, and in a way this echoes much of what we've heard over the last day and a half, that this was a success for science and a a disaster for the person. Um, Looking at that more broadly, um, I'm very fortunate, as as I've illustrated in my role, the dual role within within the organisation here in Gloucestershire, as a clinician and a medical director. And and this uh, job affords me the opportunity to communicate more broadly with the public, or at least observe communication with the public more broadly on a regular basis. And uh, recently, uh, I'll just tell you a bit of a story about um, uh, a series of events we held with regards to reconfiguration of services in Gloucestershire for paediatrics, stroke and trauma care. They they are politically hot potatoes, potentially could produce a very angry response from the public and from health professionals, and even uh, marching in the street in a public outcry. That didn't happen, and I think the reason that didn't happen was because we were massively um, advantaged by having a range of clinicians, nurses, doctors, AHPs, who stood up on public stages a bit like this one and put forward the case for change And the public were convinced by that case in that discussion. And I think there's a lesson to be learned from that. Now, on the basis that I've now relayed two anecdotes, and that's the plural, that we're allowed to get data, that is definitely data that I've just quoted to you. I really strongly feel, and Sam's alluded to this earlier on, that we're at a point now where we need to engage much more broadly with the public debate. Um, we need to explore and, and as, as Mark Water said yesterday, co-create the answers to a series of questions about healthcare provision over coming decades. The last few days of Medicine Unboxed have left me even more convinced that a purely scientific and mechanistic approach to solutions uh, in a climate of shifting demography and limited resources and changing expectations, which we've heard about today, will not produce the right outcomes for the people we serve. I feel very strongly that we fail to credit the public with the intelligence they hold. Uh, And as in the recent furore over the Liverpool care pathway, we often blame the press when we should be asking why we're not communicating better with the public. I was particularly struck yesterday uh, by repeated applause, and indeed we've seen it again today, uh, when Richard Horton raised comments about about various things in in the discussions on consultation. It may have been that the value of his comments were much higher than the other members of the panel, but I suggest he understands the art of getting the message right and putting over, in this case to the audience, better than others, and the response from the audience was an illustration of how we should be communicating. We need to pitch it right for the public, but we need to learn that lesson. So, moving forward with this agenda, We rely heavily on nurturing mutual trust uh, between healthcare professionals and the public, and I mean mutual. There's no doubt that this trust has been undermined in recent years, and we've heard about this today with Shipman and Winterbourne View and numerous other examples. I don't think the Francis report is going to help us in restoring that trust. In addition, and again as we heard earlier today, the doctor's strike has... I think illustrated to me that there is a gap between the doctor's perception of where the public are and where they are. And that, I think, further threatens the trust that exists. So finally, I suggest we must increase and improve our communication with the public at all levels. And unlike the result for Mrs Jones, who I talked about at the beginning, we must strive to deliver the right outcome What I feel is that uh, my hero, Jo Shapcott, who spoke yesterday, got it right when she talked about a a communal future.
0: Thanks, Sean. Ray Tallis?
2: on the stage. or my flies are open. I hope neither of those things are true. Uh, I think before we look at how we communicate outwards, I think we need to think about how we communicate with each other. And if I'm a bit preoccupied with this, it's because I think I failed in my opening remarks to communicate at least two points that were central to what I was thinking. First of all, that evidence-based medicine is a necessary but not a sufficient condition of good care. And I gave the reasons why I thought it wasn't a sufficient condition. And one of the most important ones is, of course, evidence-based medicine deals with the general patient and there's no such thing as the general patient. There is always a patient or indeed a person who is temporarily a patient. And of course it's very important that when you're offering evidence-based medicine that you're not offering it as a robot who happens to be a node in an algorithm. All of those I think one could perhaps take for granted. But it's interesting, I've heard quite a lot of sort of Um, quite sniffy comments about evidence-based medicine, and I just wanted to invite people to look back at the history of medicine uh, in perhaps a critical way. Uh, Prior to the use of biomedical science and, indeed, proper evaluation of nostrums, medicine was about intoxicating and butchering patients, and with very little, I have to tell you, in the way of, uh, as it were, doctor-patient relationships. They were pretty poorly developed in the 18th century. So just a little whinge there. But, I, I think, but when we're thinking about communicating with the public, we need to think what we mean about the public. The public is not one homogeneous lump. There are very many publics, and there are different publics bending what you're communicating. When we're talking with an individual patient or person, and they're talking with us, that's quite different from when you're trying to communicate a message about the appropriate use of antibiotics when you're the chief medical officer to you know 20 or 40 million people. And the other important thing is I think you do need to have some idea of what communications people actually want to receive. Um, It is about an interaction between singularities. And sometimes people don't want to be communicated as much as one may think. I was very interested in Richard's story. He saw his doctor, Richard Richard Horton, that is. There was three questions the doctor. How are you? How is the other testicle? And... You know, is it all right? We see you in six months or whatever. Now, I, too, had a little bit of a problem and I had exactly the same encounter with a doctor and I left punching the air with delight. Job done, tick in the box, and that was it, you know. So clearly, even within a particular, apparently homogeneous social group, there's different things uh, that may want, may want to be communicated. And so I think often people talk very generally about communication. But actually, uh, I don't think there are any general solutions. I wasn't going to say anything about uh, the thing that seems to me most important to communicate until after, until we had this extraordinary session uh, just before our present session. And it seems one of the things that we individually and collectively have to communicate is the catastrophic uh, challenges that are facing healthcare as a result of the kind of things that Colin Lees and Richard and so on have been talking about. And I think this is probably uh, the most urgent thing that we have to communicate at the moment. Because if we don't communicate about what the NHS and Social Care Act is going to do, a lot of the very good stuff we've been talking about will seem navel-gazing almost. And I think we need to communicate amongst other things with our representative bodies and express our anger at how little they represented us in the case of this extraordinary act, the the, 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 the uh, Lansley Bill. The BMA... And the RCP, in particular, I would single out as people who deafened, uh, closed their ears to what a lot of people thought. A great exception, of course, Claire Garada and the Royal College of General uh, Practitioners. Fantastic. And she uh, is one of my heroes. And, uh, but if, if, if this act goes through, we're going to have a huge problem with communication for precisely the reason that Colin picked up. When you're getting advice from a doctor in an Americanized health service, you're thinking, you know, why is she giving me this advice? What's she getting out of it? In other words, communication is based on trust. But if your doctor refers you for a cataract operation, you think, hmm, are they trying to meet targets? Then you'll be less, feel less warm about it. So within the new NHS, if, we, if it comes about, communication is going to become much more difficult. It's going to become actually adversarial. Because when we come to managing patient expectations, as people talked about, then the, those in the front line will be seen, as it were, to be uh, protecting the party line. And one thinks historically doctors have not been, one hopes, or in many cases, many important cases, they have not been the people who have protected the party line. In the Ibsen notion, they've been the enemy of the people. And we've lost that dimension of medicine. The doctor, in a sense, as a a community leader, communicating very important truths to society as a whole. Many of us feel that the profession is sinking or or shrinking to being a collection Of sessional functionaries. So there are quite important changes uh, 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 that may happen that will actually seriously damage our best endeavors to communicate with our patients by actually bringing about a breakdown in, 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 in the relationship between the doctor and the patient. Thank you.
0: Thanks very
1: much, Ray.
3: Thanks, Gabriel. Thank you. Um, I wanted to make f- four points, I think. When I was starting to think about what I would say, what I would communicate to you today about communication between uh, the medical profession and the public, I, uh, one of the thoughts that came back to me was from very early in my public health training, uh, learning a little bit about health education, as, as, we, as we termed it then, And uh, one of the barriers that I remember distinctly being talked about was the lack of public understanding of uh, actually how their bodies work. And uh, I had a little look on on, on the web and I found a a survey that was done earlier this year and it was of uh, 2,000 people. It was done by the Museum of London because they were uh, putting on an exhibition about anatomy. And they... This survey showed that 50% of people couldn't identify the location of their heart, 60% couldn't name their blood type, 62% didn't have a notion about the function of their pancreas, and 74% didn't know that the liver was the biggest internal organ of the body so i really wonder how with all our expertise and uh, no matter how good our communication um, is with the public how, how how much the public can actually understand unless we do something about the woeful state of education of the public around how their bodies work and operate one of the great disappointments about the uh, uh, in may 2010, as the Labour government was coming to its end, was the failure uh, to pass the legislation requiring, or the regulations requiring compulsory sex and relationship education in in school. And I think uh, the Conservative politicians who stopped that happening um, uh, that, uh, that was a, a dreadful thing to do because it showed every sign of passing and should have been passed. And uh, I'm delighted um, to hear Yvette Cooper say that one of the first acts of a new Labour government will be to pass that because uh, I've done a lot of work on teenage pregnancy, and one of the constant themes of teenage pre- pregnancy, particularly of uh, a very early teenage pregnancy, is that young women don't actually know how their bodies operate and don't know anything about sexuality and about relationships. So my first challenge about communication is: well, in order to communicate, the first thing we have to do is communicate to particularly to young people as they're growing up about their bodies and about how their human body, about how their own body works. The second thing I think that uh, impedes me in my communication um, uh, attempts is and uh, you may well have touched on this yesterday i got some hint in the previous discussion that you did and that was about access to the science uh, i am a great fan of uh, evidence based medicine but i bloody well can't read the papers i, I you know i was writing something yesterday about um, children and food uh, and uh, their access to food and the effect of, of salt, of uh, saturated fat, etc., etc. And time and time again, I ran into paywalls. The literature is there. Uh, it gives me a tantalizingly um, inadequate abstract of the paper, but I then can't get the bloody paper. And I go through Athens, and I can't get in through that. And then I go through various other uh, pathways to try and get my, navigate my way through. And you know this is a nonsense. this is an absolute nonsense that we 're generating all this scientific uh, endeavor and uh, it, uh, research findings, and that I or members of the public can 't actually see them so access to science I think is extraordinarily important. The third point I wanted to make was really about some of the communication stuff that i 've seen and some of the things that have happened over recent years and and uh, that are driving um, things and uh, uh, as I said uh, in my introduction, I, I, I left the Department of Health at the end of, uh, end of March after uh, a very long and, and uh, uh, friendly relationship with the Department of Health, but I was so glad to get out of the bloody place. Um, because I was actually able to say outside the Department of Health what I, what I felt. And one of the things I've really disliked over the last number of years has been the Change for Life campaign. You know that thing with those little coloured plasticine men and stuff like that, oh. telling people to do things. And putting the whole way in which we put the responsibility on the individual for ill health and saying, what do you need to... It's uh, uh, finger-pointing, but in with plasticine figures who don't have any fingers. Um, uh, what you have to do is you have to sort yourself out. You don't, we don't have to sort out the alcohol companies, we don't have to sort out the food companies, we don't have to sort out the transport system in the country. It, you have to sort it out. Just do what these little plasticine figures are telling you uh, to do. And an example of, of, uh, of, of what the effect that that communication has, and other communications, some of the other programmes that have run, like Change, uh, not just uh, Change for Life, but uh, the, the five-a-day programme, for example. The uh, 2009 Health Survey for England uh, reported on uh, people's responses to their survey about levels of physical activity, and uh, you'll know that the chief medical officers uh, re- and the Department of Health's recommended level is 5 times 30 uh, minutes of, uh, se- of, I was going to say sexual activity, physical activity <laughs> per week. Uh, chance would be a fine thing. LAUGHTER um, uh, five times 30 physical activity a a week. And uh, the response was very encouraging. It was 39% of men and 29% of of women responded that they uh, took their five times uh, 30 minutes of physical activity a week. Uh, And then they took a subset of that, they attached accelerometers to them, and the accelerometer data showed that 6% of men and 4% of women was the real figure that uh, took the physical activity. So I think a lot of the communication that we've been doing around health has been telling people the right answers to give when they're asked uh, in questionnaires. And that's why when you look at the distribution of consumption of uh, fruit and vegetables, you get this big peak at five. Why is that? Why is that? Now, the interesting thing was that children didn't lie. When the same study about uh, uh, physical activity was done on children, they didn't lie. They gave accurate, uh, uh, accurate responses. Um, and my final point was about the role of doctors in all of this. And I, um, one of the things I really noticed the role uh, uh, over my medical career has been the way in which doctors have withdrawn from uh, the arena of civil society. The first public health paper ever published in this country was prevention and health, everyone's business. uh, uh, Barbara Castle was the Secretary of State. And in that paper, it argued against the compulsory wearing of seatbelts because they were an infringement of civil liberties. Within a year, Parliament had passed law requiring compulsory front seat belts, and that was because of the medical profession's campaigning. It was the medical profession that set up action on smoking and health, and set in train uh, the great change that we've seen in smoking habits. More to be done, with the great change we've seen. In the medical profession campaigned for uh, crash helmets, for you know, and, and there are great people like Jonathan uh, Shepherd in, in Cardiff, who's been campaigning, um, a maxillofacial surgeon, who's been campaigning for shatterproof glasses with great success uh, along the South uh, South Wales. Fantastic achievements, but by and large, the medical profession are back into what Ray called uh, what was it? Um, uh, Sessional functions, Uh, a a collection of sessional functionaries, Um, and we have left uh, opted out of civil society. And I look at uh, you know, for example, one of the things I get very cross about is uh, childhood obesity and. uh, The notion that we need to do more in schools, teachers need to do more and we need to have more physical activity in school. In Bristol, and the data is available for everyone in the country, 34% of primary school children um, travel to their primary school by car in Bristol. 34% and we are concerned about childhood obesity. And the reason why, I don't blame the parents, it's really, as a cyclist in Bristol, it is really survival uh, skills that you need. And uh, parents are. concerned about the safety of their their
0: children.
3: But just think of the communication value if every paediatrician in the Children's Hospital in Bristol, in their white coats, with their stethoscope, walked down the hill from the Children's Hospital to the City Council when the Transport Committee was uh, meeting and demanded demanded that every child should have the right to walk or cycle safely to and from their school. That's the sort of communication with the public and that's the sort of communication... uh, arena that the medical profession and other health professions should be in. Thank you very
0: much. <laughs> I, so I allowed you an extra three minutes just to recover from your Freudian... Uh,
3: thank you,
0: Sam. <laughs> <You're> very kind. <laughs> um, on to Iona Heath. Thank you.
4: To follow um i'm going to talk about coleridge mammography belief waste and harm At least that's one again to try and do um we uh, we heard about keats and shelley uh, yesterday it's clearly time for a touch of coleridge and in um richard holmes's fantastic biography of coleridge he writes this the question of a difficult style was crucial to him for he coleridge believed that the brief, punchy, short-sentenced and epigrammatic style of journalism was itself a form of superficiality. It lacked what he called the cement of thought and the hooks and eyes of memory. Now, I'm not going to use that to attack journalists. That's much too easy. What I am going to talk about is what happens when doctors and healthcare professionals get together to write patient information leaflets. (laughs) Um, and when I think about that I am powerfully reminded of the struggles over the first translation of the Bible into English (coughs) because it was thought that the Bible the people could not possibly access the Bible perhaps because they didn't know where their livers were I don't know what the the argument was Um, but they had to have the Bible interpreted to them by the clergy and what happens with patient information leaflets is you get uh, uh, superficiality hardly begins to describe it. Um, and, you, and you get this, this incredible simplification of very complex topics. Mammography is a clear current example. Uh, the leaflet has now been in the face of increasingly um, educated women's protest, withdrawn. I think they're now on the third attempt to write an acceptable leaflet that is actually less economical with the truth. Now let's take the issue of mammography. The whole um, cancer prevention industry is based on two unsubstantiated beliefs. The first one is that prevention is always better than cure, incredibly seductive, not actually proven. In cancer and that you can draw a clear distinction between a benign and a malignant cell. Nature is full of continuums, it's very rarely um, has clear distinctions. So we have a whole industry of doctors and other healthcare care professionals and even politicians committed to trying to prevent deaths of women from a horrible disease. Absolutely laudable. But because of the strength of the belief that that is the right thing to do, and probably also the benefits of the careers built on that, we have had a systematic ignoring of the evidence around harms. It is now absolutely clear um, that mammography programs cause harms through overdiagnosis, um, and that you, you are going to label at least 10 people as having cancer and having treatments for cancer and going through the whole uh, psychological trauma of labeling yourself as a cancer survivor, Um, for 10 people, for every one person you might save. And that's all based on old evidence because as the treatment of um, breast cancer (laughs) by wonderful oncologists improves, then the benefits of screening recede. Um, but the reluctance to accept the evidence, to provide women with information um, that would enable them to make a genuinely informed choice about a very difficult balance of risks and and probabilities um, has been really quite extraordinary. And it has been said... um, Fairly openly, but there's a clear undercurrent that if you tell women about the possibility of overdiagnosis, you, less women will attend, and the mammography program will be even less effective. That is like telling um, people that they can't read the Bible. So I think there is a an urgent need for doctors and other health professionals to be much more honest about the limitations of medicine about what we can achieve, about how difficult some of these decisions are, that they have to be struggled with. I mean, there are all sorts of other areas where we, we should be talking about this. You know, the rhetoric about how easy it is that, uh, to stop, uh, to, to protect children. You know, that is the most difficult decision a GP ever faces, I think, is the decision to refer a family to social services on the grounds of child protection. Yet it's Is portrayed as just a simple decision. So that was my message. Thank you.